to use the bench Bible in front of you, that we're looking at James chapter 5 and verse 7, and that's where we're going to be reading today. But before we do that, it's picnic day, and so I've got the Academy Awards envelope that I promised last night. So it's really a battle of websites, I heard. Some websites say we should stay, and some say we should go. And uh, so we're going to find out what the official answer is. Anyone have their heart set on the park? Anyone else say, let's be safe and stay here? All right, all right, let's find out what we got here. So the winner is, oh, park. Okay, we're going to the park today. <laughs> so <laughs> several websites were consulted and lots of sky trackers and all sorts of things that I don't know how they all work. But um, anyhow, so we're, we're going to Connors Park for a picnic afterwards. Hopefully you brought some food. If you didn't bring food, you know that K KFC is on the way, right? And... Uh, <laughs> And if you, if that's, there's still going to be a sharing table. If you said, well, I didn't bring food, I didn't bring money, I really am not prepared for this at all. Uh, come along. We have a sharing table, and, uh, and hopefully you'll be able to find something there that will uh, be wonderful. All right. So Connors Park, just south of town. On, if you go down 9th, keep on going. And about a kilometer out of town, it'll be on your left down the hill. All right. James 5, 7 to 11. Let me read it to you this morning. It says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So just a few verses, but um, lots in it. And uh, I just want to work our way through it uh, line by line here this morning. First, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. This is the first verse. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. So we're given several examples in this passage of Scripture of people we should try to imitate. And number one is farmers. Isn't that great? If you're a farmer, you're feeling good right now. You're like, man, they should be more like me. That's wonderful. Uh, but what are, we, what are we supposed to imitate when it comes to being like a farmer? And... Uh, it says, be like the farmer who waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. So if you know a farmer who was impatiently waiting for the spring rains, don't imitate that, but imitate when they patiently wait for the spring rains. Now, here's the thing about farmers. Uh, we know several things about farming, just living in a farming community. One, number one is we know that farmers, even though they're wonderful people, have no control over the weather. Even today with our picnic, we have no control over the weather. We all understand that dynamic, but the farmer knows that really well because the weather has a great impact on his life. Also, the farmer, he waits a long time for results. That's why the patience is needed. But the third thing about a farmer, and I want to just emphasize this, is a farmer works while he waits. He works while he's waiting. And if a farmer is still working... 
while they're waiting for rain or they're waiting for whatever conditions or sun sometimes, it shows that they haven't given up. It shows they're persevering. It shows that they still believe and that they still have hope. If you see a farmer handing out his resumes around town in the middle of the summer, you know he's given up. But most times what I see is farmers, they, they plant, they pray for rain, and then they get to spraying and they do their summer stuff, haying, whatever, all the things that farmers do, but they just keep working. They just keep working. They work along with their expectations and their faith for the future. I had a friend named Alvin, and he had a play on words that he used to say. He'd say, Steve, we need to wait on the Lord. And I'd say, okay, yeah, we'll just be patient. You know, we're praying about this situation, and, uh, and we'll see if our prayers, you know, are answered in the way that we hope that they're answered and that we have a great positive result at the end. And he said, no, Steve, we need to wait on the Lord. I said, well, I think that's what I described to you, is waiting on the Lord. And he said, no, Stephen, you even need to wait on the Lord while you wait on the Lord. And I said, okay, now you got me confused. But that's when he would pull out the imaginary, he'd sort of pantomime pulling a towel over his, his arm, and he'd say, we need to wait on the Lord. Like we're butlers, or we're waiting, on, we're, we need to serve the Lord. Basically, he said, well, you're waiting on the Lord for an answer to what you prayed about. He says, you need to serve the Lord in the meantime. And uh, that was really great. I, I loved his advice. Wait on the Lord while you wait on the Lord, right? Is, is reckoning. No, you don't, I don't find that saying anywhere in Scripture specifically, but I think it's a, it's a wonderful way of thinking about it. My mom used to say a similar way. She'd say, work along with your prayers, right? I, I'd present some problem to her, and she'd say, okay, let's pray about it. She always wanted to pray about it, so we'd pray about it. And then she'd say, now work along with your prayers, because faith is not inactive, it's not completely passive. It recognizes there's things that only God can do, and so we pray. But it also recognizes there's many things we're called to do in that partnership with God. And so we do the things, just like a good farmer does, they do those things to anticipate the answer, anticipate the harvest, anticipate the results. So be like a farmer. How should we be like a farmer? Well, the farmer recognizes that they are not in control. That's the, that's the beauty of farmers. They understand that they are not in control of the situation. They do all the things that they can do, but at the end of the day, they wait patiently for rains. They, they anticipate that something else must happen in order for uh, the harvest to come. So be like a farmer. Then it goes on to say, it says, you too be patient, this is verse 8, and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, let's, let's talk about this, don't grumble against one another and standing firm. Those are two of the phrases. Be patient and stand firm and don't grumble against one another. So here's the situation. When James, the brother of Jesus, the younger brother of Jesus, wrote this book or this letter, uh, he was writing to people who were experiencing great suffering. Um, the first sort of shot fired was the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the church, right? He was sort of trumped up on some charges, and then uh, he was stoned to death. And uh, the guy who would lead the next wave of persecution against the church, uh, his name was Saul, was standing there actually guarding the coats for everybody. He's everybody saying, I'm taking my coat off so I can throw rocks better at Stephen. And Saul said, eh, I'll watch your coats while you do this. 
totally approving of what's happening. In fact, he took it to the next level. He said, I need permission, he got permission from religious leaders to go all over the place to root out all the followers of Jesus. I, he, he was a one-man wrecking crew. He, he believed that his mission was to stamp out this Jesus movement because he didn't believe it was a real move of God. He, he believed that it was something false. And so he went to destroy the lives of Christians and they were arrested and imprisoned and many were killed. So they've seen, G, they've seen Stephen die in, in a stoning. They've seen... Uh, People arrested and imprisoned. In fact, the church is beginning to scatter. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're going to find other places. Maybe if we can get far enough away from Saul, who would later become Paul, if you know the story, and later become a follower of Jesus and write a lot of the New Testament that we have today. Anyhow, if they could get far enough away, maybe they'd be okay. In the midst of that, they hear the news that James has been killed. James is one of the leaders of of that the Jerusalem church. They hear that Peter's been imprisoned. He actually gets out miraculously. But they're hearing all these terrible things. They're experiencing all these terrible things. And he says, be patient and stand firm and don't grumble against one another. Interesting. Don't grumble against one another. You know, when you have bad circumstances in your life, you really have a choice. You really have a choice. You can't choose what's going to happen to you. Like we learned from the farmer, you're not really in control. We're the same as farmers, right? We We can't dictate what circumstances come into our lives, but we can choose our response to them. So, I mean, you could have a series of unfortunate events that would come into your life rapid fire. In one day, your whole life could be changed. There'd be wreckage and devastation across your life. That could happen, right? Anyone experienced that hail that hit the north end of the city? That was something crazy, wasn't it? I mean, you just don't know. I'm not just talking about weather, but I'm just talking about life can hit you so fast and so hard you can't even stand up. And um, when it happens, you have a choice. And James is, is saying, don't grumble against one another. That's one of the things you'll be naturally drawn to when you face adverse situations, to grumble, to be... Uh, uh, totally funky in your head and down and negative and lashing out at the people around you. In fact, your response to negative times often will tell you a lot about what's inside of you. It'll also tell you a lot about what you value, what you really value. Again, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, whether you're holding things as a, uh, a goal I must have with a closed fist, I can't not have this, or whether you're holding things with an open hand. I'd like this, I desire this, but at the same time, I'm open to whatever God wants to put into my life. And so grumbling is a sign of disbelief. It's a sign of saying, I don't, I don't, I didn't get what I wanted that I must have. Maybe there's an idol in our lives, something that we must have instead of God. And so that grumbling shows up. It also shows up in the fact that we don't, it sort of says something about the level of trust we have in God. I said, well, this, all this happened and, and, and so maybe God's not, as good as I say that he is or that the Bible says that he is or maybe he's not as trustworthy as he says that he is and so grumbling begins to reveal that and if you are feeling quite convicted because I'm talking about grumbling because you say boy I've been grumbling just take that as God's sweet opportunity for you to repent to turn from that to say God I'm sorry I, I, am, I was in the wrong place this week, this morning 10 seconds ago whatever it is 
Just take it as God's opportunity. If he shows you something, then it's, it's his timing, his gracious timing for you to turn from that. So what's the opposite of grumbling? Well, it's gratitude. It's gratitude. When situations come into your life, when you get squeezed, when the heat is on, all sorts of stuff starts to emerge. And when it emerges, uh, it shows you what's inside. But it's an opportunity to make a choice, and you can always choose your response. You can't choose your situation, but you can choose your response. And so you can choose gratitude instead of grumbling. Every situation that comes in your life is an opportunity. Are you going to grumble? Or are you going to be grateful? Are you going to say, God didn't give me what I want? Or are you going to say, God is in control and I trust him? Are you going to get bitter? Or are you going to allow this situation to make you better? Are you going to get sicker? Or are you going to get sweeter? Are you going to get ground down? Or are you going to get polished up? We, have, we can choose a response. And so in the midst of situations, uh, like the song we were singing, Great is Your Faithfulness, right? Morning by morning. We've gone through all these experiences in life, and every one of them is an opportunity to, to turn to God and say, I trust you. I trust you in spite of really threatening, difficult, harsh, unjust circumstances. I'm going to still come back to the fact that you're in control and I can trust you. I'm not in control, like the farmer knows, but you are in control. Now let me just stop here for a second and talk a little bit more about something that's in the text here that you'll see again and again. It says, be patient and stand firm because the Lord is coming near. And then later on it says the judge is standing at the door. Um, One of the things that gave the early Christians a lot of hope was the second coming of Jesus. And Jesus talked about this, that he would come again. He told his, his followers that that's something he not only had he come the first time, but he would come a second time. And that gave them a lot of hope and a lot of encouragement. But then when things got really tough, that hope became even more important to them. And so you can imagine someone who's cowering in their home wondering if Saul and his troops are going to come and rip them from their home into prison and separate their family and, and maybe kill members of their family. Imagine if they're cowering and hiding and they might be just praying fervently for the second coming of Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And throughout the centuries, this has been the prayer in the church. This has been a prayer that's been prayed many, many times because the many, I mean, the North American experience that we have right now of Christianity is is not the norm. The norm has uh, has been in many cultures all across the world and to this very day is persecution and suffering and paying a big price to follow Jesus. And you can imagine all people who are in that situation, they could easily be praying, Jesus, would you just come again? Would you just come? Would you just step into into our world? See, the promise is that the judge is at the door, that, that, that Jesus' second coming it could be in any, at any time that he's near. Now, it didn't mean necessarily that it was going to, Jesus wasn't necessarily telling his followers, hey, in the next 20 years, I'll be back. But every generation has that possibility that he could step into history. It's like, he, it's like I imagine it's like there's a king and there's a kingdom, and inside that kingdom is one rebellious city that decides to totally throw off their uh, rightful loyalty to the king and uh, defy him. 
And so the king comes with his armies, more than enough to capture this city. It will be easy to capture. But then he stands at the gate and he stops. And people within that city who are still loyal to that king, they say, oh, please, come in and invade. What's going on in here is terrible. This has become unlivable. The way that people are treating each other, the way that all the things that are going on inside the city, it's so sick, depraved, it's wrong, it's evil. If only that good king would burst in on the scene and judge all those who have done evil and rescue all those who are loyal. That's how I imagine this verse, that he is near. And he can break in at any time. He can break in on any time on history. All that matters is his, his choice to do it. And so this was a great encouragement to those in those days. And so they said it shows up again in the New Testament. The Lord is near. He could break at any time. It wasn't necessarily saying there's a timeline because Jesus warned us against that. You know, if you, if you think, I know when he's coming, you're wrong. That's plain and simple because nobody knows the, time, the day or the hour. But the fact that he is coming, even if it's not in your lifetime. So you've got... You've got this reality that the Lord is near, whether he breaks into history in our lifetime or we persevere until the day he extracts us from this life, he is in control. He is in control. Let's go to the next part. It says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So we got example two. We've had farmers, now we've got prophets. What was so great about the prophets? Well, let's read uh, about their example. Um, First, Matthew 5, Jesus talks about them. 5, verse 11 to 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. By the way, another way of saying blessed are you is happy are you. That's another sort of synonym you could use in this context. Boy, you should be really happy when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Why? Why would you be happy about that? Why would you feel blessed? Second verse, it says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the example of the prophets is they were persecuted and they anticipated a greater reward. In fact, they even anticipated that their persecution would play a part in that greater reward. Jesus also taught, don't store up your treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up your treasure in heaven. Anticipate the greater reward. Hebrews eleven thirty six to 40 talks more about the prophets and those who'd gone before. It said, women received back their dead, raised to life again. That's the only really encouraging one. We'll get to the harder ones after that. It says, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Where did they have their eye on? They had their eye on the greater reward, what God would give them, not in this life, but in the life to come. Not in this life that's a breath, that's a vapor, that'll be over. Maybe you get 100 years at max, and then you're done. And then trillions upon trillions to follow. And they had their eye on the greater reward. It said, some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. 
They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised in this lifetime. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So they lived before Jesus' first coming. They didn't even have the encouragement of Jesus' first coming, but they lived and they were faithful to God. And they anticipated that their faithfulness, even in the spite of torture and unfair treatment and the threat of death, would be rewarded by God. So they said, I'm going to live for God. I read, the, I read a story this week, and it, it sort of shook me a little bit. It's the story of a little girl. I can't remember the age, but she would have been in elementary school in Uganda. And someone had come to her school and, and at the school talked about Jesus and, and the love he has for us and, and the fact that he is willing to cleanse us of all sin in our lives, making a, a, a pathway but for us to God, basically. That his death on the cross made it possible for us to have peace with God, relationship with God, to have what we were made for and created for, friendship with God. She received this message and she believed. She believed. She came home, her dad was furious. And so he took her to the front yard and threatened her with a knife and he said, you must, you know, repent or you must turn around from this. You must, you know, deny Jesus. And she said she couldn't. So he put her in a room on a mat and he said, he says, when you're ready to deny Jesus, you get off that mat and you knock on the door and I'll let you out. And he closed the door. Well, weeks and months went by. Her little brother dug a hole under the door and he would fill it with water so that she could bend over and she could, she could lap like a dog the water. And then he, he had some banana chips. I've eaten some of these in Honduras, actually cooked banana or plantain chips. And he would slide those under the door and she would eat those. Three months went by and people in the village started to ask, what happened to your daughter? Finally, enough people asked questions that they opened the door. And uh, she was sitting on the mat. And because she'd been there for three months, her body had started to already deform because of her posture. And they said, well, what's happened to you? And she said, I couldn't get off, I couldn't leave the mat because I knew leaving the mat meant denying Jesus. Today and throughout all the generations since Jesus has come, and even before that, the prophets before that, people said, I found a greater treasure. I found something I would never give up. I found something that's worth more than all that you could give me in the world. These were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they'd been promised in their lifetime, since God had planned something better for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect. It's crazy to me when I think of what people have, have, how people have stood firm for the Lord, and then I think about how easy my life has been. I have had very little suffering in my life. Even when I looked at preaching on this, this, uh, this passage, I thought, boy, someone else should talk about this. I, I'm going to try to stay as close as I can to the scripture because I can't tell you great travail stories 
from my own life. But boy, have we had examples go before us. And even in today, in our, our day, more, they, some people say there's more that are martyred for Christ in our day than ever before. So look to their example. Look to the prophets. They anticipated and lived for a better reward. See, just like we anticipate Christ's second coming, they were anticipating the first coming. And it gave them confidence to not sell out for a lesser treasure, but to find what they found in, in God, the greatest treasure. The next line says this, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Now, you might have just heard that story and you thought, I don't think that's blessed. I don't think what that little girl experienced is blessing. I don't see that as positive. What, seriously, why suffering? What, what is the blessing in, in suffering? James is the book we're in, and the very first verses of James give us some hints on that. It says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the very first verses in James 1, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, remember, the Christians especially were scattered, greetings, consider it, Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, this wasn't like somebody from Canada having a really easy time as a Christian, writing to someone in Uganda having a hard time. This was someone who was going through the same persecution as others were. And when James writes this, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Wow. How can we possibly obey this command to welcome difficulties into our lives instead of resenting them? To, have, to be full of gratitude and praise towards God instead of full of grumbling and resentment. It's by trusting that God tells the truth when he says that these difficulties will make us more like Jesus. They'll increase our endurance. They'll expand our ministry. And they'll prepare us for eternal joy. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. One of my, this is one of my funny, another one of my funny friends, Jason, I traveled with him for about a year on, uh, it's not, doesn't exist anymore, Life Force teams. Anyhow, I did this for one year, drama and evangelism, went all over Western Canada, did presentations in high schools and whatever. But it meant that we got billeted everywhere, and usually I was sharing a room with another guy, and, and for a week I spent, well, I probably did it a few times, I spent it with Jason. And Jason was a new Christian, probably in about the last year and a half, and I'd come out of a rougher background, lots of drugs and alcohol and trouble with the police and all sorts of things. But he would just have so many fresh takes on scripture and fresh takes on his experience as a Christian. I remember the one morning he was looking in the mirror. I was sort of, you know, rolling out of bed, getting ready for another day. And he was looking in the mirror and he was just like, hallelujah. You know, he was all like, you know, like this. And I was like, oh boy, Jason, he's crazy. And I was like, what's up, Jason? He's like, he says, he turned around and said, look at this. And he had this big zit on the end of his nose. His Look at this. God must want to teach me humility. It's like, you are crazy. You are a nut job. Like, nobody acts like that except for new Christians. Actually, like 
spending time with him. He'd always give me a totally fresh take on things. Hallelujah. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, including acne. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You want to know, like, perseverance is actually valuable. Everybody recognizes that. I hope we all recognize that. I mean, the difference between people who win and lose in life is endurance. It's perseverance, stick-to-itiveness. Some people get knocked down and they stay down, and other people get knocked down and they get up. Well, this tri- these trials that are talked about, they have that ability to produce that in us, especially the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith. You say, well, I believe in Jesus. Then circumstances come and threaten. And you say, oh, wow. And so you either abandon that and say, yeah, I don't know if that really worked out for me. I was sort of hoping for a really sweet life that just, you know, I thought God would just make everything go away that was bad. And, and, uh, and other people, they go so deep in that time. They go so deep in that time of trial that they come out even better. Think about examples. A little while ago, we had the Watoto Children's Choir. They're here in our church, and they're up on the stage, and they did their thing. And, you know, there's probably two things you can't miss if you ever go to a performance from the Watoto Children's Choir. One, they've had a harder life than us. Two, they're probably happier than us. Anyone go to the performance? It's true what I'm saying. You go, wow, you had a hard life. And you're really grateful There's something absolutely attractive about those two together. There's something absolutely attractive about those two together. Do you you know who Joni Erickson Tata is? Maybe you'd have to be a certain age to know who she is probably. But she was uh, 19, prime of her life, very athletic, dove off the dock at the local lake, and um, her spine bent in such a way that it snapped her spinal column and she became a paraplegic. This is what she said. She, it says, and now she, she paints. She has to use the brush with her mouth in order to do that. And she's a writer, and, and, and she's, it's been, I think, 50 years since this accident happened, and she's still serving God. It says, um, she writes of God as a painter. She says, God is a master artist. She says that along with the bright colors, God brings the cool, dark contrast of suffering into your life. That contrast laid up against the golden character of Christ within you will draw attention to him. Light against darkness, beauty against affliction, joy against sorrow. Is God bringing dark shades into the portrait of your life? The light of Christ in his children is made more manifest to the world through the dark colors of suffering born through patient endurance. When we see people and we say, you suffered, you're suffering, and yet you're grateful. You ever go to visit somebody and you go, I am here to cheer them up. And you're trying to think of how you're going to cheer them up. How am I going to cheer them up? What am I going to say? I've got to think of some nice things I'm going to say to cheer this person up. And then you get into their presence and you find them cheering you up. That's really attractive. It's really beautiful. It's really amazing. You go in and you go, I what just happened there? That's not, math of math. That's not math at work. 
life plus suffering equals grumbling. But that's not what I experienced. Life plus suffering equal gratitude and joy. There must be one more thing in the equation. And that's where when people find out that the thing in the equation is Jesus, they come to see just a glimpse of his value. That he is a treasure worth giving up all for because they see how it's transformed our lives. So suffering has overlooked benefits. We count as blessed those who's persevered. And then the next verse says, we have heard, or you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. So here's the example of Job. So be like the farmer, be like the prophets, be like Job. Job 1, 20 to 22. What's the story of Job? Job is a story of suffering. He, had, he was a very wealthy man, had many children, and uh, his wealth and his children were gone in a series of unfortunate events. All taken away. So he shaves his head, he tears his clothes, and he sits down and he waits. And this is what he says. Job 1, 20 to 22 says, At this, Job got up and tore his robe. He shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord taken away, has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. See, Job had this attitude that God has given me my life. And if God gives me my life, if he wants to take it away... There's no, there's no injustice in that. There's nothing wrong in that. God gives me life. He takes it away. He has the right to do both. Psalm 24.1, I don't have this on the PowerPoint, but I'll just say it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. And then 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. If you want to be like Job, you have to recognize that your life belongs to God that your life belongs to God, that he's the one who gave it to you. We should repeatedly tell the Lord that we belong to him. One godly woman I ran into years ago, she was speaking at a camp and she was probably in her 70s and she was full of fire, like just really on fire for God. And afterwards I, I interviewed her and I had the opportunity to ask her some questions and I said, what's your secret? What's your secret? Everybody knows, like this is how we would all like to end up when we get to your age. So tell me, what's your secret? And she said, oh, I've done different things for the year. I said, what about your spiritual disciplines? She goes, well, I have one I do every day, and I've done it every day since I became a Christian. I was like, I got my pen, I got my paper, tell me. Every night, she says, I get down on my knees by my bed, and I tell the Lord that I belong to him. Then I crawl into the bed, pull up the covers, and open the Bible and try to read one chapter of the Bible. And if I fall asleep, it still counts. that really and she'd done a lot of other things but that was so simple it's just every night i tell god i belong to him and then i acted out by reading his word so i just do that every day and she just fallen more and more with love in love with god as the years has gone by and she was attractive because her life hadn't been easy but there was a joy there there was a treasure there and jesus looked good when seen through the lens of, of her life. 
So we should repeatedly tell the Lord, I belong to you. Maybe there's more you should say. Maybe you should say, this house is yours. This money is yours. This body is yours. These children belong to you. You own the title deed. You own the rights. You have the power of life and death. You have given, and whatever you've given, I'm holding with an open hand, and you're welcome to take it away because you are God. It becomes much easier to trust God when we understand that whatever he takes away belongs to him in the first place. Have you done that? At least in your mind? Have you told the Lord that the things that you have are not yours, that they're his? It's a great exercise. I think you need to do it repeatedly. I know I need to do it repeatedly. I've done this many times and then I claw back the stuff that I've given back to God. But maybe this morning, that's what you need to do. Even just quietness of your own heart, you just need to say, okay, God, I think I closed my fist around that. I think my fingers are white-knuckled around that. That thing, that experience, that relationship, something's become an idol. It's become more important to me than you. And I need to turn from that and open my hand. I need to turn from that and open my hand. You know, when I, when I, at my probably most obsessive peak of infatuation with my wife, Marnie, before she was my wife, when she was still not my wife and not, we weren't going out, I thought about her nonstop. I was writing her, I was calling her, we weren't in the same community, I was thinking about her, I just, it just was my every waking thought, pretty much. And then, when I asked her out and she turned me down, I had a gut check from God. And I had a pastor that taught me to journal my thoughts, because he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. So my journal got some pretty hard-pressed ink written into it about what had happened and how I was sure this was, you know, I was sure, I didn't even know she could say no. I didn't even know that was an option for women. Anyhow, (laughs) I found out, got a wake-up call. And I remember the line, it's it's a tear-stained page with a sentence on it. Two sentences, I guess. And it took me a long time to come to it. But when I came to it, this is what I wrote. God, I don't need her, but I do need you. And I thought maybe my obsession, maybe my, my desire, maybe my uh, delight in who she was had somehow eclipsed my delight and desire for God and maybe she was becoming the treasure that God was meant to be in my life and could it be that she had taken the number one position that only God deserved so that got all rectified and two months later we were dating and they don't stories don't always end like that mine did but God allowed me to open my hand and it wasn't an easy process It was like prying each finger off one by one because I did not want to do it. 
But God will always, if something threatens him, not that he's threatened, it's us who are really threatened. When we make something else number one, we will take a good thing and we'll exalt it to be number one and it'll become an evil thing in our lives. He doesn't want that for us. And so he'll always challenge us. He'll always convict us. You take something and it's good, but you make it bigger than God, God will come and to ask you about it. He will ask you about it. And that's mercy that he asks you about it because he doesn't want that thing to twist your life, to become an idol that you worship, that can't possibly sustain all the hopes and expectations that you put upon it. When I, on my wedding day, one of the, I, you know, we got to do the thank you. I got up to do my part of the thank you. And I just told people, I said, hey, you can see our love on display. You know that this is the real deal. You know, you're here to celebrate with us. I just want to tell you that before we chose to be in this marriage with each other, we made another choice a long time ago, and that was to allow Jesus, well, not allow, but to choose to respond to Jesus. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of our lives. So just as much as we're celebrating each other today in this great relationship, there's a greater relationship we both have, and that's Jesus. And he's number one, and this is number two. I mean, I don't know if that's a buzzkill on a wedding day. I didn't think it was. I just thought, I want to share the gospel. I want people to understand the work that God did in my life to get me to this day so that I actually relate in a more healthy way to my wife, not as a person to worship, but as someone to walk side beside with. So be like Job. Recognize your life belongs to God. Here's the next verse. It says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I'm going to give you this one as homework because I don't have time to read it all. But if you are feeling like God doesn't care about your life, read Psalm 103. It's a great go-to. Read Psalm 103. Let me just read you a few things. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. I'm not even reading it all this morning. Psalm 103, write it down. Make it a go-to. You say, I just need the compassion of God. I need to know that he loves me. I need to know. It'll bless you. The final example. Be like the farmer. They know they're not in control. They know that God is. Right? Be like the prophets who live for a greater reward. Not... The, this life being the, all that it's meant to be, but there's, there's more that God's got for us in eternity. Be like Job. Know that your life belongs to God. He gave it to you. So recognize that. And here's the last one. It's not in the text, but it's what every, all this is about. Be like Jesus. 
1 Peter 2, 19-23. So it says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. Some of you, the, the suffering you have experienced in your life, other people caused it. And it was not fair. It was, you were wronged. You were sinned against. Now that I've acknowledged that, let's see what we do about it. What Jesus would do. It's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. Let's just skip down a little bit. It says, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Okay, it's good. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it's unjust, it's not right, but you, you're, you're still enduring it. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Okay, let's learn about his example. It says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So what happened to him could not have been just. His suffering could not have been just because he was totally innocent. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Be like Jesus who trusts in the one who always judges justly. Here's the thing. You say, I got to keep score. The suffering I'm experienced, others have afflicted. It wasn't my fault. I got to remember that. I got to hang on to that. I got to keep a record of that. Some of you literally are keeping a record of that. And Jesus shows us a totally different way. He shows, shows us a totally different way. Bearing up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. And entrusting, this is what it says, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This means you say, God, I'm not going to keep score anymore. I'm not going to keep that record of wrongs. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says love does. It keeps no record of wrongs. I'm not going to keep that record of wrongs. I'm going to let you be the judge. I'm going to let you be the just judge because I won't judge justly because nobody measures hurt in the same way. You know, when you get someone, they, you know, they say a careless comment or, or they hurt you in some way, you often come back with just a little bit more, just an ounce more in retaliation and they come back with a little bit more and soon it's a pound more and soon it's a ton more and, these things escalate because we don't measure pain on the same scale. We say, what I did to them was nothing. And then they experience and say, what you did to me was terrible. But then they think, what I did to you was nothing. But what you did to me was terrible. So that's how these things escalate. And here is Jesus giving the solution to end all that. Entrusting ourselves to him who judge justly. See, God's not unjust. And God is gracious and compassionate. And he gave you his life, and he's got a greater reward for you. Let me read you as a benediction, Hebrews 6.10. We're almost done, right? We're going to picnic in a few moments. But let me read this to you, Hebrews 6.10. It says, God is not unjust. Is it clear? God is not unjust, Hebrews 6.10. He will not forget your work 
and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. You say, I got to keep score. I got to write down that I did what was good and they did what was wrong. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. God's already keeping score. Not only is he keeping score of, of what people have done, he's a just judge. He's keeping score of where you've done things right. Just that I did good and nobody noticed. I respond, I forgave and nobody gave me credit. I, I, I persevered. And nobody's patting me on the back. That's where you got to entrust your life to the judge. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. And the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So God has a great reward for you. God has got eternity with him. God gives you himself for eternity. And he's not unjust. He's a just judge. I want you to stand with me this morning. Worship team, if, if you want to come back, great. So I don't know your suffering. Some of you are saying, I'm not suffering. So you're banking this for future. Because in this world, you will have trouble. Promise. So some of you, you're just, man, life is great. I'm not, it's a great day. I'm going to have a great picnic. It's going to be awesome. Everything's good. But some of you, you came in here with a heavy heart. You're going through something. There's an anxiety weighing on you. There's pressure that doesn't release. You don't know where the valve is to let the pressure out of the system in your life right now. Some of you, you've taken some hits for following Jesus whether that's from other people or just the reality of life. You could have took shortcuts, but you had integrity. And you think nobody cares. And nobody's keeping score. But God is a just judge. And you can entrust your life to him. You can trust him with your life. He's in control. Sometimes you say, I don't know how God could ever work this for good. And I don't even see his hand. The Bible says his, hands, his work is beyond tracing out. We can't trace it out. Sometimes we get glimpses. It's like being a detective to sleuth along and go, wait, 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 I think that's God. And, oh, and I think that's God, but I don't know where he went in between, and I'm not sure what he's about, and I'm not sure what the final plan is. That's normal. If you can't see the work of God's hand in your life at this moment, that's actually quite normal. That's why it requires faith. That's why it requires trust. That's why we entrust ourselves to the just judge. Let's pray.